Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Optive Theology Podcast. I'm Andy Schmidt here with Nick Gibson and our guest, Maggie Flamingo. Thanks for joining us, Maggie. Um, today, we're going to be talking about divorce. And so I guess right before we do that, Maggie, do you want to give us kind of an introduction to who you are, like what you do, where do you study, all that fun stuff? Sure. So I am a PhD student uh, at the University of Wisconsin, and I study the intellectual history of the doctrine of divorce within American evangelicalism. So you're an expert. You're I an mean, expert that's the claim. But Hopefully. You know. right. <laughs> yeah. If anybody Great. is. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Great. Great. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I guess so. Th- this podcast and what we're doing probably for the next like two or three podcasts, we're just talking about kind of the, the, the overarching question is, you know, can Christians get divorced or should Christians get divorced? That's kind of the main question. But I think the best way to start a huge question like like this is is because it's so you know close and to people's hearts and there's a lot of stuff that's going on in in people's lives and there's a lot of divorce and there's a lot of emotions around this i think to go back to kind of through the history of marriage and divorce and even here in america and all the way back to to when we first see marriage in the bible um which is is why we have maggie on here so i think we could just jump right into it um the first question that I have here is, where do we see marriage first mentioned in the Bible? I don't, I don't even know the answer to this question. It's probably an easy one, but Maggie, if you want to go ahead and, I mean, if you, if you know, I mean, it's in the Genesis record, right? I mean, one of the most important things that uh, earlier theologians, up until I would say the early 20th century, would really focus on when talking about marriage and divorce is the fact that marriage was the first institution. Before government, there was marriage. Before sin, there was marriage in the Genesis record. And so there's a lot to be taken from that. And a lot of um, at least American theologians that I've studied have pointed to the fact that um, that institution of marriage is the cornerstone for society. That's where you get that theory that like when marriages fall apart, America falls apart. You hear that over and over and over again. Um, And that's why it really is based on the fact that marriage is one of the very first things that God ordained between men and women. This might be a dumb question, but were Adam and Eve, were they married? I don't know. Were they like technically married? Like, does it say that? Like the word marriage? Yeah, or whatever. I mean, whatever word were they like married? Married. I mean, does it well, say I'll, anywhere? I'll answer it through what Jesus said when he was asked about divorce. He said, you know, from the very beginning, what God has put together, let not man separate. And he refers to the Lord putting together Adam and Eve. So it absolutely is biblically the the marriage of Adam and Eve. That was the first marriage. All right. Yeah. Great. The word marriage is not used in the passage. But everywhere, it's assumed, including the teachings of Jesus explicitly. Hmm. Okay. I mean, this next question is, is a little bit you know, more broad, so, so either of you can actually answer this one. Um, but how is marriage defined in Scripture, and, and what is the purpose of marriage? Now, that's a huge question. So you can go at it, and we can just kind of break it down from there. But whichever one of you wants to pick that one apart first can go ahead. Maggie, they hear from me all the time. Oh, okay. All right. Um, I mean, what is the purpose of marriage? Uh, I think that there's been, historically speaking, as a historian, there's been very different answers to that over time. Uh, So there's been a 
like sea change in the purpose of marriage as far as secular culture goes, um, in that now it's for individual fulfillment. It's for happiness, right? That's the number one reason people talk about divorce is like, I was no longer happy. I no longer felt fulfilled. I didn't feel myself. Um, and so you have a lot of scholars who are arguing that that's actually a triumph, right? That you took marriage as like a really problematic institution and turned it into something that is good. Um, I think the biblical narrative is different. Like you, you absolutely see a um, mimicking of Christ in the church, right? Like that's the echo um, that we have in the Bible is marriage is uh, an echo of the relationship that Christ has with the church. Um, you see certainly marriage before you see procreation. And although I think the church has historically overemphasized the purpose of procreation and marriage, like that's not the only reason to get married. Um, and it is not wrong to get married and not have children. Um, like there's, there's been some negative teachings that's, um, I think has, is problematic in the church, but that has been much, has a longer history of being the purpose of marriage is establishing family. Okay. I got a question. If, if, if our job, so you said, okay, if God said to us, he was like, you know, our job is to like, multiply and like fill the earth with you know people um and you said it's not wrong to not have kids i don't know if it is or it isn't I've, i just had this debate with my friends the other day we were trying to figure it out like is it actually like sinful to not have kids because it felt like god was giving a command to like be fruitful and multiply can you break that down a little bit more i, I think what maggie's getting at is that there have been certain times in the history of the church where there was a dis, what seems like a disproportionate absolutist emphasis on procreation, like things like, for example, any birth control would be wrong, or that um, any um, any act of intercourse within marriage sexually that what didn't have the intention of affecting for procreation would be morally wrong, mm-hmm. and any any time you'd have sex for like just recreational or bonding purposes, for just for enjoyment or because you just wanted to and maybe you didn't even think it through all the way that that was um, feeding into the sin of concupiscence, which was like sort of like, like aggravating the flesh, so to speak yeah. you, by using your sexuality to do that. So there, there's certain parts of that kind of theology that, um, and then that morphed into forms in American fundamentalism where the idea was, the idea was that like part of being a Christian soldier was actually having a lot of kids and having your quiver full of arrows, so to speak. And so on. It's, it's how you get like, like very fundamentalist Catholics and very fundamentalist Baptists end up having the same size families, mm-hmm. but for, with slightly different, slightly different theology behind it. Would you say, would you agree with some of that? Maybe? Yeah, absolutely. That's what I was getting at. That I think that that purpose of marriage has been twisted to um, present some really problematic views of marriage and family um, that have really haunted, I think, um, American Christian history. So, mm-hmm. Okay. I yeah. guess that makes sense. I, so, so you guys saying you think it's fine to use birth control and everything like that and that's like super interesting to me i don't know why but i I like have been trying to think through it i'm like okay wait is it actually wrong to to use birth control i don't know if the catholics do they think that it's wrong to to use birth control or not yeah yeah so is it i mean can is it wrong or could you say that it's wrong to use birth control We, we should we should stipulate that the vast 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 majority of catholics 
use birth control. Oh, they do. Yes, they do. <laughs> um, but the papal teaching and the historical teaching of the church is that birth control is to use birth control is sinful. And it's extremely controversial in the sense that like there's a very deep history with like Catholics. Actually, one of the um, leading doctors who helped develop the birth control pill was so excited about it because he thought it would actually give Catholicism a theologically strong way to support birth control through the pill. And he was absolutely devastated when the Vatican turned it down. Um, so Dr. Dr. Rock. Uh, yeah, it was, it was a why tough did time. He think, why did he think, Maggie, that they would be for it? Um, because he thought that it it really obliterated their um, objection to like a, um, like, a, how, how, he basically thought it was recreating the rhythm me- method, like which Catholics support, but medically, like right. inducing it in kind of a way, like a pill form of like, hey, isn't this great? Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've always thought that if you that the rhythm method is like mm-hmm. that that wouldn't be if anyway. It's Catholic roulette so, yeah. is probably one of my favorite right. jokes. Yeah, anyway. so Andy, I think I think part of the issue here is is that um is that it it's very difficult when people's lives kind of are in the balance and what their life is going to be like is in the balance and yet the issue at hand is an issue of stewardship like you have to make decisions about it. You know, you want to give an absolutist rule so that people don't make interested decisions where they like they decide things selfishly, right? So like selfishly, a lot of people, especially when they're young, will be like, I don't want to have kids. And by the time they realize they want to have kids, then they're older and their fertility is not the same, right? And and so there's all these issues related to that. So like, I don't know of any Christian in history that thought infertile people who are married should have kids or infertile people couldn't get married, right? The issue right. is, is that if you're fertile and you get married with the capacity for bearing children, are you morally obligated to receive children? That's the question. Mm-hmm. Well, Nick, you ta- I've heard you talk about in Europe, the death rate is higher than the birth rate. I mean, that's not something that we, or it will be, or it is, I don't know. Well, but it depends on your idea. We there's lots of people that want a much lower carbon footprint for humanity in the on planet Earth. And so sure. a decreasing population is something they've been wanting for a very long time. And there's a, lar- there's a, large, me- there's a large strain in economics that isn't Malthusian, but like has kind of that strain that like there's part of the prop why reasons why people have problems is because they're in competition with one another because there's too many people relative to the amount of resources. So if we could get the population down, we wouldn't have issues with like poverty, for example, in advanced societies and, and so on. So there's 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 whole swaths of people who sure. really want fewer humans on planet Earth. That's true, but like what is I mean, my question is what does God want? As Christians, because right, the world can say whatever they want. I mean, they can make limits on how many kids and whatever. Who cares? I, I don't really care what the world says. This is a Christian podcast, and we're Christians talking to each other. Right. So, like, how do you answer this question as a Christian? I mean, and if you can't, I mean, obviously, this might be Matt, impossible. You go first, you want me to- yeah, I mean, so for me, the, I think that you have to take the the biblical command, like, be fruitful and multiply seriously. But I also think that we can look at that and say, well, have we done that? is the world populated, which was clearly the intent of that. Um, And I think that that, yes, it is. Um, And I think exactly to Nick's point, what is the motivation behind not wanting to have children or to limit the number of children that you have, right? Um, Think about it this way. If you are using birth control because you want to adopt children, you feel like you like are better able to provide via adoption versus biological children, like that is a amazing thing to do. I think that is something that is also biblically commanded to do. You might not have the financial 
financial resources to support 12 children, but let's say that you, you know, want four and you can adopt. I, there really is also, I think, the complex issue of the fact that some women are much more fertile than others. And does that mean that they should be pregnant their entire life? Um, I mean, that, yeah, yeah that, I think that there's an issue with that as well. And so I, there's right. a yeah, lot so to like, it. Mm-hmm. Like women with standard fertility will get pregnant on average every, every other year until menopause. And so for some women, that'll be like 18 to 26 children. Right. And that's kind of a lot of kids. Um, and, and yet like one kid per woman isn't enough for the human race to continue. So like in order for the human race to exist and for us to not diminish, but also like for people to not be like physically broken by the number of children that they have, like what ends up happening is you have something in between those two numbers, right? And if you have something in between those two numbers, you're some human volition is being used to determine how many kids you're having. Right. And and that ends up being the question, like how many is that? Right. Yeah. And so, I don't, I, I mean, I know very few Christians who believe that women should get pregnant as often as they possibly can. So I, I heard one person say like this and they were Roman Catholic and I, this may have been code for have as many kids as you can, but I, I like the languages that the, the posture of a godly marriage is to be hospitable toward new life. The goal of a godly marriage relative to procreation is to be hospitable to new life. And the Christian household is supposed to be hospitable in all things, hospitable to travelers, hospitable strangers, um, b- believers, people who are part of the household and so on. And so any, like when younger people get married, they say, Hey, is there like a biblical command about how many kids I should have? But I tell them something like that. I said, I think the preponderance of Christian teaching is that God wants godly offspring to quote Malachi, the book of Malachi, and that we, you should have a, um, a relationship of hospitality towards new life, hmm. but I can't dictate for you. And I, and I, and I do say this, if in your mind, your standard for like how many kids you're going to debate from is two, just start off making it three. That's just what I tell people. Cause a third of women have to have three if there's going to be humans. Right. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> okay. All right. I mean, that's a rabbit hole that we probably could do an entire, yes. entirely different mm-hmm. podcast on, which could be interesting. Do you have something to say, Maggie? Oh, no, just, I agree. Okay. Well, that, that could be fun, but we're not going to do that right now. I, right now, I, Maggie, I want you to go. This sounds impossible, so we'll see how this goes. But through, so right now in the church and in America in general, um, I don't know how it is like globally, but there's a lot of divorce. Like I, I think I grew up, you know, and almost I think almost all my friends had divorced parents. I can't think. I mean, maybe three or four of them didn't, and so it was like more common to to grow up in a broken family. I guess where I'm from than to grow up with a two parent in a two parent home. And so do you, can you kind of take us from like, how did we get here culturally to maybe like, how did we get here as the church where a lot of Christians are getting divorced and it's just like the church has like two different responses. One of them is kind of like, okay, you know, get divorced and it's fine. We'll kind of turn a blind eye to it. No big deal. The other one is like, we're going to completely ostracize these people who get divorced and never talk to them again and treat them like garbage. I think both of them are terrible responses, but that seems like the two popular responses from the church. So yeah, you want to, yeah. Just to be clear, the, you know, the hood that the Andy is from is the hood of like Wanakee, Wisconsin. (laughs) Well, yeah. Well, actually, Sauk Prairie, Wisconsin, but sure, both of them. Yeah, Wisconsin. It's yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, for sure, there's I 
divorce touches every um, segment of society, it is clearly um, at a level that I think we're now all just used to. It's actually been a pretty steady rate of divorce. Um, recently, it's declined um, in recent years, but a lot of sociologists and data scientists, it's, it's just because people aren't marrying and that's why the divorce rate has actually declined. And so there's there's still this marriage crisis, right, that is happening um, that certainly has influenced the evangelical church, um, no doubt about it. So you can play around with statistics as much as you want, um, because there's about a bajillion different ways of uh, interpreting all of the data and even asking questions about divorce and remarriage. Um, but here's something to keep in mind. If you're reading anything throughout history, from the very moment that divorce statistics were taken in America, all evangelical ministers were freaked out about the rate of divorce. That was back when the statistics were like one out of 17 marriages. Everyone was like, this is devastating for America. Society is going to break down. And so the rhetoric hasn't changed around it, although the data definitely has. Um, the biggest change is going to be actually in the legal availability of divorce. And so if you're also looking at divorce trends over time, you have to recognize that divorce has not always been as free and open as it is now. Uh, Ronald Reagan was the first uh, governor to sign no-fault divorce into law when he was the governor of California. Um, and so it wasn't until the 70s that you ha could have a contract of marriage broken with no reason. Up until that point, you had to have a reason and you had to defend that reason in court. Mm. Um, and so our conception of what like constitutes a good divorce has changed pretty radically since then. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. I think that the feminist movement in particular um, has a lot of both good and bad um, influence on that. So good in the sense that I don't think that women should be trapped uh, in terrible marriages that they were perhaps forced into, right? And there are plenty of cases where that was happening at, say, like the beginning of the 20th century when women had no legal rights whatsoever. Um, and so it's very easy to point to this reform in divorce law as being liberating and liberating in a way that Christians should have been like proud of and happy of, right? Like the fact that child marriages, now women had a way out um, of, you know, their, their alcoholic husband was beating them and the children all the time. Now they had a legal way to get out of that. Um, like that was something that uh, we can look at and say, okay, that, that definitely isn't something that we want to stop. Um, but with that came rising divorce rates. Um, and so if you look at the way that divorce has changed over time, I would point to like really the, the key moments of, um, women's suffrage when women were able to vote. Um, that's really what sets off a, a brand new emphasis on divorce reform laws in the 1920s. Um, there's uh, That's a rabbit trail, but there's a really interesting move where the feminists were actually doing the work of the evangelical church in the 1920s, trying to get federal laws. Um, and then, of course, you have um, up until the 70s where you have just a new view of what marriage actually is, that it's not about the good of society, it's actually about the good of the individual. And there's a lot that gets us there. But once you have that individual view of marriage, right, that it's about me, it's about my happiness, no-fault divorce makes perfect sense. And that's when no-fault divorce really swept the nation. And evangelicals have bought that line, right? Um, they right. bought that theory. So of course, no-fault divorce makes sense. Do you think also, Maggie, that um, with the increase in uh, productivity economically and the rise of um, income relative to consumer goods. It also made like you didn't you didn't need your spouse's bed economically, right? Absolutely. Like, you were getting to the point where like 
you could live on your own. Mm-hmm. You you could do it was doable. So I, th- I think that I think that like you know if you go back two thousand to the time of the Bible, like a couple thousand years, like marriage was about survival. Mm-hmm. You know, it was about caring for each other in sickness and things that would happen to you. It was about like having a family farm that worked or a family business that worked. It was it was it was a it wasn't about romance. Like, like when you read these old books about like, and people are like, well, what does romance have to do with marriage? Like, and when, and, and like in our generations, we're kind of like, these people are crazy, but like they would have thought we were nuts. Mm-hmm. The idea that like marriage is about romance. Like that's the stupidest thing ever. Like that's they're just the way they, they lived in family life and, and the, the situation that existed both legally and economically and spiritually. And the way they understood themselves as human beings was completely mm-hmm. different. Nick, what are you talking about? Nick, for people who are, can't see this, he typed something into the little chat. What does that even mean? Can you oh, just explain yeah, that? Yeah, so like one of the issues, like, so when, when Maggie said this, like, this like almost throwaway phrase where she's like, the feminists were doing what the work of the evangelical church by seeking certain federal laws, which of course is true in the moral sense, given the assumption that the church should be advocating for federal laws at all. Right. So like, yeah. Right. So like, um, what, what we're talking about on one level is like, there is a theological truth that God has spoken and shown about himself relative to how we should practice marriage as believers that may have some relationship to the laws regarding it or none. Right. So for example, St. Valentine, um, was a Christian Bishop who married Christians in defiance of Roman law and was beheaded for it. Right, because the law said Christians couldn't marry, and he said, "Sorry, you can't say that." Right. So there will be times where our understanding of marriage is not going to go along with the state's view of marriage. The problem is this: relative to laws, is th- there is no regime in the church or legally that somebody isn't going to take that that like somebody isn't going to abuse. So, for example, if you have if you have like very high stakes marriage where you can't get out of it, right? That's really great for abusive men, right? Hmm. If you have um, a situation where you can engage in no-fault divorce and 80% of women get custody of their children no matter what, then that's a great situation for a feminist independent woman who gets sick of her man and just doesn't want to be married anymore, right? So like, no matter what, how you set the law, there's some group that's, that is like, it's more in their sort of fleshly self-interest to abuse it, right? So there is no, there is no divorce law that's going to like get us there. Well, right? we got we to gotta talk about, we, then we need to talk about how, because I... How should Christians even fight for for this for these things like in in the law? So like you you talk about uh, Ronald Reagan and I can't remember what the name of what whatever no fault divorce no fault divorce yeah um I don't I mean did did that did that like I don't even should we even be fighting for stuff as Christians we we obviously wouldn't be fighting for something like that maybe maybe we would I have no idea but like it's it's become like so. You t- you talked about in a sermon a couple weeks ago, Nick, about how obsessed Christians are with just with their political stances and their viewpoints. And it's like, okay, at what point should we just say we're going to do what we're going to do as a church, and whatever happens in the government is going to happen? Like, like it it seems like whenever we try to fight for stuff in the government, it goes very poorly for a certain for for either one group or another group. So, should we even be fighting for for stuff like this in government? I mean, what you're getting at is like how evangelicals have been waging culture wars. Um, And really, I I think that 
often what gets talked about, I know at, at our church, um, because I, I go to the um, Pastor Dick's church, is that there is this um, deep, like, I mean, marriage works. There's a marriage between a certain political party and evangelicalism um, that has become really problematic. Um, I would say it was problematic back in in the time of Reagan, actually. And interestingly enough, um, that was a moment in evangelical history where evangelicals just kind of as a group decided not to care about his divorce up until that point. Like if a politician was divorced, that meant they wouldn't vote for him, but suddenly he was the evangelical golden child for other reasons. And it actually didn't matter that he himself was divorced or that he had actually promoted the most liberal divorce law uh, in the United States. So there's this fascinating um, kind of, yeah, just concession that was made around divorce. But as far as the question of like whether or not evangelicals or believers should get involved in laws, I think that there's there's a difference between um, what evangelicals did. Um, and my comment about like the work of the evangelical church is that the evangelical church was lobbying at that point for uniform divorce laws. And so like the feminists had this like really weird, like we're saying the same thing, but for different reasons moment in the 1920s um, when they wanted it to be federal rather than state law um, that you know, decided whether or not divorce was possible. Um, But in other questions, I mean, of course, you're going to have the, what Nick was talking about, whether or not Christians are able to freely practice Christianity. And I think that is something that Christians need to pay attention to. Like, how much so am I able to live out a life um, uh, following Christ in this country? That's something we all need to be concerned about. Whether or not we're wanting to put our standards on people who do not share our beliefs, I would say, and this is my personal view, tread very carefully on that um, and pray well, deeply about what you're doing. I mean, I don't, I mean, yeah. One second. This gets, this gets really complicated right, because what ends up happening with divorce law, it ends up, you end up presupposing a victim before you make the law. Mm-hmm. Right. And so if the, if the victim is the person who's abandoned in a divorce, that the person least interested in the relationship can legally abandon the other. And that's what you're concerned about, right? Then you're going to make like strict laws about people getting divorced. If the victim in a marriage is the unhappy person who initiates leaving the relationship, then you'd have very different laws, right? Hmm. And so if, um, if you give 25 years of your life to someone in a marriage on the assumption that you will stay together until you, die and then the other person decides they're not happy and then say says they're the victim when they abandon you who's the victim right and so like what happens there determines your moral view which is based on your anthropological view like what you think a human is is a human an essential thing that needs to discover what it is and then act morally on that basis or is it an expressive thing that can say what it is and choose however it wants to be happy and then express itself however it wants if you believe the latter, then you're for no fault divorce and people should be able to, it's not, you're not abandoning somebody. You're just going on with your life and your promises were provisional anyway. And the people should have understood that. Um, if you're an essentialist and you believe that human beings live together in strong bonded relationships, even before their individualism, um, then if you believe that, then abandoning the family is the worst sin a human can partake in just about other than blaspheming God. And so like what you think reality is and what you think about things is critical. And the, the issue is, is like, something is some moral views behind every law. And if Christians advocate for what they believe theologically, 
then they're guilty of stepping in and trying to imbue our society with certain theological norms. If they don't, they are abdicating to whatever secular view is in, ascendant, in the ascendancy. So this is one of the reasons where I'm like, I'm always a little sketchy. Like when, Matt, like when Maggie was like, you know, evangelicals are kind of in bed with a certain group and like that was problematic. But like I get the emails from like the Wisconsin Council of Churches and the National Council of Churches. And these are all the liberal mainline churches mm-hmm. and they are as in bed with the other political party as you could possibly be. Mm-hmm. I mean, just – just, yeah. I mean, totally mm-hmm. given over to advocating for their political views. And so, like, I have a little trouble shooting at evangelicals and conservative Christians for being for Republicans. I mean, it was just, just, I mean, everybody knows who these parties are, right? In larger percentages, because, like, it's not like the, the mainline churches are like, you know, well, we don't want to get involved in politics. Like, they are, yeah. some of those churches, there's little, there is little about them other than their political advocacy. Mm-hmm. They have mm-hmm. they are because they don't believe in the historic Christian theological ideas, and so like, so anyway, so I'm I'm kind of like man, it's really hard to expect evangelicals or people who believe in historic Christian faith and have an essentialist view of human beings to not be somewhat conservative in their outlook, and therefore to naturally like be for more conservative notions of human relationships and connections. Yeah, does that make sense. It, it does, and I think a bigger point to what you're saying is that one of the things about the American culture wars is that it has rhetorically polarized things to the point where most people are very reasonable when you actually sit down and talk to them one-on-one on certain issues, but we are given one of two choices. And so you naturally entrench yourself and support things that really, truly you might not be that supportive of, but you feel so attacked that it's like, if we show any sign of weakness, right? If we give any like, tiny concession to maybe being less conservative, we are going to lose so much ground. Everything feels Mm -hmm. so high stakes. And there's a reason for that. People are not irrational in thinking that either. Um, So there's, there's a lot of things um, that are like, I, I'm very skeptical of all politics. um, And so I think that there's, there's so much like, just hatred. Um, that's yeah. pretty problematic in, in the way that politics and particularly politics and Christians um, get taught about, mm-hmm. get studied. They get studied in a way that's very problematic as well. Um, even people from within, so evangelical historians as who self-identify as evangelicals have just done a crazy amount of work in the last four years um, to just I don't know, really rip apart evangelicals for their voting practices in a way that is um, kind of malicious. And I, I'm still reeling over that. Um, and so there's there's a lot of infighting right now as well, I think, as evangelicals for some reason want to fight for control. It's happened before. Um, and it's it's just a phrase, right? Evangelical. Uh, if you don't want to identify as evangelical anymore, then don't, right? But anyway, that's a different rant. Yeah. Maggie, I, I'm actually so pleased to hear you say that about evangelical historians because I have been I have been kind of annoyed and flabbergasted at the willingness of them to just like kick the it's church. It's so rough. Yeah. And like and it's not like it's not like they're not like right. Mm-hmm. Like or like partially right. Nick, it's can just, you give it, an example? Can you like break this down and give an example of one or what? This, um, so I'll, I'll go after about. a book if you want. Um, so there's a really sure. popular book right now um, that is uh, by Kristen Dumas called Jesus and John Wayne. And it's. Oh, yeah. It, I just read. I just read David French's column on that. Oh, really? Okay. I haven't, I haven't yeah. read his opinion of it. Was it kind or not so much? 
It was very kind. Okay. It was disagreeable, mm-hmm. but it was it was kind for a lot of good points that she made. Yeah. So basically, the argument is that like masculinity has been toxic in evangelical culture for so long that it produced Trump. That like, uh, and it, it's this very like I'm always skeptical when I open a scholarly work and it starts with something so relevant um, as like <laughs> Trump during the 2020 <laughs> election cycle. I'm like, huh. Okay. Um, But it's one of those things where I read the exact same sources as she does for my dissertation. It's an interesting book. It really is. The source, she's not lying. It's there. Um, But it's often not telling the full story. And it's often not highlighting those who would dissent, those who would disagree, or those who would fight back against that kind of toxic view of men. Right. And so and the tone of it is so it's just it's a very condescending tone. And other historians have pointed that out as well. There's been some other historians who are like, look, there's just something about this where she just seems to be processing things um, that, you know, about evangelical history. So anyway, that that that's an example. And you you just you have this like suspicion that's a sneaking suspicion that her next book is not going to be about toxic femininity in the mainline denominations. Right. Yeah. No, it's and and their dismissal of a concept of masculinity like she, like that's not going to happen mm-hmm. right yeah yeah that's interesting i think we gotta sh- we we gotta shift back into marriage and divorce yeah. though um so i wanna i wanna ask maggie and i guess nick you can answer this too but what do you see then in like t- 2021 what are like i don't know a couple of the main issues that the church is facing when it comes to marriage like why are we seeing so many divorces or like what's the main cause of these divorces what what do you think you can go first maggie i mean i have so many thoughts like yeah my my initial reaction was not kind like kids are stupid um like there is this kind of like attitude of um, just romance culture, right? Like, I, I really think that there is a lack of awareness of how difficult things are um, and how much work you have to put into a really strong marriage. I also think that there's uh, just problematic patterns of discipleship. Um, you need good discipleship to have good marriages. Um, and so that's another problem as well. Uh, you have, um, you know, a, there's just so much pop, like pop culture beliefs of like, oh, well, as long as they're a Christian, then we'll be a great spiritual match. Like there won't be any mismatch there. It's like, have you actually talked about your like beliefs, like what you're doctrinally yeah. agree on or not? Are you going to go to the same church? No. Like what? Are you yeah. out of your mind? Um, yeah. Like there's just a lot of, um, yeah, that kind of like discipleship and, and really deep thinking. It, it, it's so emotionally driven. That's, I think, for me, a really big problem. Yeah, I think one of the issues, I think there's a couple, yeah, I, so I agree with all that. I also think that um, there was there were times when there were a lot of incentives to stay married. Mm-hmm. And we have changed those incentives. So You're talking in the church? Both in the church and outside the church. Yeah, okay. so like there were a lot of economic incentives. Um, it, was, it was a huge stigma to be divorced at a particular time in America. That's just not true now. I mean, it's um, also, I think people don't necessarily understand that um, divorce is a contagion socially that like um, if somebody gets divorced in your social circle, um, the rate of divorce in that social circle will be three times what it is in other social circles that don't have active divorces. This actually happened in my wife's um, homeschool group that there was a woman who had a really, really awful husband who got a divorce that I think was probably properly conceived. 
And there were, I think, two or three divorces within the next two years in that mm-hmm. group of 15 marriages. People just pull the trigger. They're like, oh, you know, if so-and-so's getting divorced. And people don't like realize that, um, how that functions. So th- there's, lo- there's a lot of stuff like that. And just like the way we're taught to think, what, what Maggie called romance culture, expressive individualism, whatever you want to call it. Also, I just frankly don't think people believe in the lordship of God, mm. that God is master and king. And like, um, also, I, do, I think people's view of the pursuit of happiness is really messed up. I think that people think, um, that changing your surroundings and changing your situation is the best way to pursue happiness rather than changing yourself mm-hmm. um, and, and pursuing happiness in the places where you have responsibilities and roles. I also think that people are willing to lie to themselves about the negative detrimental effects of divorce on kids. I think that I think when I was when I was getting married 20 years ago, there was still a general notion among people that if you got divorced, it was really going to hurt your kids. And there was no way to stop that. You could lessen how much it would hurt your kids. But um, it was going to hurt your kids in, in a relatively catastrophic way. And now people actually believe that's not true because the kids of divorce get jobs at pretty good rates. Like the kinds of things that sociologists like to measure to determine whether or not parenting has been successful, kids from divorced families do, do fine. But like um, when I talk to people who are really, really struggling and they're unhappy and they feel betrayed by their families, like they're from divorced families, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And so... Um, that notion, like when I, yeah, when I was getting that, when I was even, even in graduate school, it was like, it was considered a sociological absolute fact that you, there was basically nothing you could say good parenting wise about divorce period, full stop. And that has mostly what's happened is people just won't, don't say that anymore. Nobody says it out loud. It's just like has been vacated from human knowledge, even though the research isn't all that much different, but there have been some people who've, who've tried to do research and quote, I'm putting quotes in the air shown that if you measure it in a certain kind of way, divorce doesn't have a negative effect on kids and pretty significant. And, and like that idea I think is incredibly important, especially for women because women are, are filing for divorce more than men now. And a, a, a large portion, I think of what held those women back 15 years ago was the idea in their maternal sense that they really did understand and believe and felt in their bones that this was really going to hurt their kids. And so if they were going to get divorced, it had to be bad. Like, and they would really try other things. And I think that that's, go- I think that that's going away more. I, I don't think it's gone or anything. And I think women are still, I, I don't want to like act like women don't care or that they're the only, only ones seeking divorce. But that flip from men being the primary sex in terms of proportion to women being the primary sex in terms of proportion, um, I think is partly because we have created mythologies that like um, assuage the conscience of the divorcee. Okay, so then... In what circumstances is it okay to get divorced? You want to switch gears that far, that fast? Well, I mean, you, you, I mean, you're ta- I mean, we have to answer this question at some point. So I'm just gonna, we, that has to be answered. I mean, is, is it ever okay to get divorced? And if it is, under what circumstances? Like biblically? Yeah. Okay. So, so before we get into that, like tech, that that I think the the rejoinder to that in the local church is not okay. A lot of people are getting divorced. The incent- there's more incentives for divorce. Staying married is harder and people are getting married later or not at all. Um, so what do we do? We better get our doctrine of divorce straight. Well, we do. We need to get our doctrine of divorce straight, but that's one of a number of things we have to do to support marriages mm-hmm. and families. Yeah. And so um, let me, before we move on, I want to say one last thing relative to 
divorce too, is I think it's, I, I think the Christian church not taking seriously the biblical sexual ethic is a huge part of this too. Yeah. I think us in like the church doesn't openly endorse hookup culture or all the things that come from a sexually revolutionized um, sexuality. But I think, I think when you make yourself okay with the abandonment and brutality of hookup culture, you are setting up your conscience to be more okay with the brutality and abandonment of later divorce, even after the covenant of marriage, Hmm. because sexuality, sexuality has within it. If it's done intimately and relationally at all, an implicit commitment of intimacy of giving the entirety of yourself to another. And if you participate in a culture that does not find the adding into that as covenantal or the breaking of it as abandonment, then you are, you're already creating a human structure of understanding that makes divorce thinkable as opposed to unthinkable. Hmm. Okay. So, so the Christian doctrine on marriage, let me, let me, I'll give you the like short, short bit here. And then maybe Maggie talk a little bit about how this has evolved. Um, Generally speaking, Christians who believe that the whole of this Christian Bible is the word of God written and inspired by him um, would say that di- that divorce is highly weighted against. So especially in the New Testament, that Jesus makes very, very clear that he weights against divorce in a very, very extreme way. Okay. If you look particularly for, well, there, are there any exceptions at all then? Um, you, there is one that is pretty universally agreed upon and one that is, I think would be the majority view among evangelicals. Um, and then people extrapolate both of those slightly. So the one that is, is most universally agreed on is the case of adultery, that if there is adultery and by this, Jesus doesn't mean looks at porn or thinks about another woman, but like literally commits adultery, has physical sexual intercourse with another woman. Okay. That in that case, the idea is that the covenant has already been broken by this act of adultery, and therefore the marriage covenant is null. And you can, in that case, get divorced, but you don't have to. You can reaffirm the marriage covenant and go on in the relationship. The second is in 1 Corinthians 7, where it talks about being married to an unbeliever. And it says that um, that if the unbeliever leaves, like you shouldn't divorce an unbeliever just because they're not a believer, but if they believe, you should let them go. And then the Apostle Paul says, a believer is not, quote, bound in such situations. And so in that case, what that would mean is is that in the case of abandonment, a Christian can accept a divorce and not fight it. And But that, but they are divorced and free and are therefore free to marry another person and could engage in remarriage. Um, that one's a little bit more debated. That one is also the one more expanded. So for example, um, you'll have people say to you, well, what about cases of physical abuse? Like a man is like beating on his wife and or like like heavy drug abuse or like unrepentant long-term alcoholism or something like that. And so there are some pastors who would say that in extreme cases of that, that that would be an active form of abandonment. That like instead of abandoning you, they're driving you out forcibly. And in so doing, that divorce would be legitimate in those cases. There are other people who argue that there are some commands that Jesus gives that are absolute, but there are exceptions demonstrated later. And Jesus expects us to understand that extreme cases would be exceptions, but that he's telling us the rule and the rule applies to almost all of us. And so there are some people who believe that there are other exceptions um, to this. They are just not explicitly stated anywhere in scripture. And we have to figure out what they are with spiritual discernment. 
The problem with that is, is that Jesus says in the one related to divorce, that in all other cases, if a man divorces his wife, he forces his, his wife to commit adultery. So in that case, so anyway, that gets more complicated. Obviously, Maggie. So what's yours? Things. Real quick, then Maggie can go. What's your? What would you say then? If, if a, like what? Where do you draw the line? Per, like as a pastor. Um, I believe that in the case of adultery, that that's an objective case. That if a person, if in, in, in this case, the offended spouse, like my view is only the offended spouse has the right to choose. Hmm. Like, I think if you go out and commit adultery, you, you don't get to go like I committed adultery. So this marriage is over. I mean, hmm. you can do that, but you're not, there's nothing noble about it. I think the, the question is, does the offended spouse wish to continue or divorce? And it's their choice. Um, relative to abandonment. I do think that that text implies that. That if you, if someone, but that, but essentially that, that's still not a chance for you to divorce. The only, the only case that makes it so that you can actively divorce is if they literally leave and they're like gone for months or years and you're like, this person isn't coming back. So I'm going to formalize the divorce because they're gone. I, I did have a, one of my colleagues married a woman who was divorced. He was a pastor and that literally happened. Like her husband just left, didn't file for divorce, was gone for years and she's just like, look, I'm filing for divorce. This is crazy. And I think that that was legitimate. I think he abandoned her. And in that case, she shouldn't be bound. And if he's not man enough to actually give her the certificate of divorce as the Old Testament demands, then I think that she's okay to do that. But the problem is, is that, and I, I actually do think that, especially in cases of physical abuse, um, I do tend to think that that you can argue that that is a, rightly, a right reversal of the abandonment. Like, um, however... I just like, I hate, I hate to make rules about that, that people can apply for themselves. I think in those cases that those cases should end up in counseling and like with pastoral direction and stuff. Otherwise any exception, we will find a way to apply to ourselves, you know, Maggie. Yeah. I mean, it, it is true that we have gotten much more, um, for lack of a better word, liberal with our interpretation of what abandonment is like, Oh, I've been emotionally abandoned because he doesn't love me anymore. Um, is, is one like that sort of thing. Uh, I have heard that in my office. Yeah. Right. And so we have to be very careful, uh, with talking about abandonment, but absolutely like historically, that is the majority opinion that there is one, maybe two, um, adultery and desertion that are the, the grounds for divorce that churches would accept and therefore allow people to take communion if they're, you know, they require membership for that or allow someone to get remarried within the church. Um, it's much more controversial in, um, some very, uh, esoteric theological ways as to whether or not that actually does mean that you can get remarried or does it just mean that you're not sinning if you divorce the person? Um, that's, a, that's a little bit nitpicking there. Um, but there is actually this new, I, Wayne Grudem actually just came out with a new interpretation, newish. I hadn't heard it ever before, um, maybe a year and a half ago, right before COVID um, on 1 Corinthians 7.15, which is not using the abandonment, active abandonment abuse argument, but instead taking the in such cases part of that verse where it says, you know, in such cases that the believer is not bound and saying that that Greek phrase is not used anywhere else in the Bible, um, but in other Greek texts often means in cases to that same level. So meaning like other things that are the equivalent of that. And he's like, that then mm. absolutely applies to abuse. And so he's actually reversed his position um, on whether or not abuse uh, is um, a justifiable reason to seek divorce. So I, I found that fascinating. Are you talking like, was he physical abuse or just any type of abuse? I mean, 
in such cases, right? So what is the equivalent? It would be a judgment call. What is the right. equivalent of being abandoned by an unbeliever? And so who gets to make that judgment call? Is it the is it the married couple or is it the church or is it the elders? I mean, who gets to decide these things? The text itself doesn't say. Yeah. Well, who do you You would, ask? Ha- you would have to infer. What would you say if I'm married and I'm coming to you and I'm whatever Not emotionally you. abandoned my wife who gets to decide this who gets to decide this i mean i would argue not you um and and, okay. and only for the reason that um so this is an interesting uh, little detail like the the majority and i can't remember the exact statistic but it definitely is the majority of people who get divorced and get remarried um would actually want to return to their first marriage they would take back their first divorce Really? Um, yeah. And so, and this was like maybe a study of about, it's more than 10 years old, but it was a fascinating kind of light bulb moment for me as I was doing my research because so many people think the next marriage is going to be mm. so much better because I've fixed the problem. But you probably <laughs> haven't. Um, and so the problem yeah. is probably you. I mean, as right. far as like statistically speaking, the problem is you. And so mm-hmm. I think that. Um, yeah, that there that's why like second marriages have a higher divorce rate than first marriages and things like that. Like you, there there's this belief that if I just fix the person I'm married to, it'll get better. And I'm not saying that everyone's yeah. second marriage is somehow going to be worse or you're always going to want to go back to your I've probably just fed into a bunch of people's insecurities. Um and that's not my point. Um but that you need to have other people making like helping you make those decisions so that you can see beyond yourself and see beyond your emotional hurt. Um, I, I just, I, yeah. I absolutely think that that's the case. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think it's one of the reasons why you want to have deep spiritual friendships um, is because some of the biggest questions of our lives, we are so personally involved in and so interested in. And it's like the human mind has the capacity to twist things so well that if you don't have people that know you well enough to be able to know the truth and understand like when you're at your best and when you're telling yourself lies, it's very, very difficult to handle some of these questions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a really so, interesting thing about that. I'm going mm-hmm. to I'm gonna have to look at that. Yeah. I'm, I'll definitely try. I'll try and find it for you. I mean, it's in my thousands of pages of documents somewhere. <laughs> but So I think, well, I mean, when people are listening to this, I, pro- I mean, some people are probably just going to get pissed off because you guys are both super smart. And sometimes it sounds like it's, it kind of sounds like there's like a bunch of rules around marriage and, and whatever, which is like partially true. What do we do then? How should we respond as Christians in a uh, in our in our Christian communities? How do we respond to people who have gotten a divorce or who are thinking about getting a divorce? Like, I guess this all I mean. I guess I've talked to a decent amount of people even in the past couple of months who have talked about, I got a divorce and all my friends abandoned me. Or when my parents split up, our church completely abandoned our family. It's like, okay, that doesn't feel great. Um, and I don't know if that's really the response that Jesus would, would have, but to, on the, on the other, on the, on the flip side, there has to be some sort of, you know, I don't know, tough love because I think that people are just getting divorced for no reason. And and so you don't just want to just have people just go out and get divorced whenever you want to challenge that as your Christian, if you're friends with, with people who are Christians, because that's yeah. what we're supposed to do. Well, so I just, how do we respond? Just to clarify, like, I'm not saying that we want to encourage people um, not to get divorced. We're getting divorced for no reason. I'm encouraging people not to get divorced who have plenty of reasons to get divorced, who have fantastic reasons to get divorced. 
I'm saying that even though even most of those people, Jesus' teaching is you shall not separate what God has joined together. Right? I mean, listen, I've had I, I bet Lexi would say at least at least three seasons in our marriage. If she was allowed to walk away from it, she would have. And I've had at least two in our marriage. Where like if I could have divorced her, I would have just divorced her. And um, I would have been fine economically. I mean, obviously as a pastor, it would have ruined my career. But like, but the reason I stayed married to her is because I w- I'm just not allowed to. I mean, Jesus is Lord. He, that means he's the king. He's the undisputed ruler of all things. And if I want and and here, here's the other thing that I, I under, I think I understood too, was that there was a, there was a path back. It was just going to be really hard. And it was going to be so hard that I would have rather divorced, which is pretty hard. I mean, divorce is terrible. Everybody tell, will tell you it's terrible. And I still would have rather done that. But because I couldn't, and I didn't want to stay unhappy the rest of my life, and because I couldn't I couldn't do it because of Jesus is king, I had to like get back on the road. And it actually turned out that the road back wasn't as hard as I thought. And um, we've had like these subsequent really, really, really great seasons of our marriage. And so like... I'm not, and I think Maggie would be in the same position as me on this. I'm not just saying, hey, let's not get divorced lightly. I'm saying, let's not even get divorced heavily, like, except for in like very extreme situations. You know, there are some very extreme, like abusive situations. And I'm using abuse in the technical sense, not in the like, I'm being misused. Therefore, misuse is abuse. Therefore, I'm being, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about like, like people are in danger of their lives, like that sort of thing. And that does happen from time to time, but the but like nine out of ten divorces that I'm at all involved in are not that kind of a situation. It's two people who won't grow up. They won't grow up. They won't face their sins, and they won't face their weakening wounds and their like their clinical level dysfunction. And because they won't do that, they have they they and they can't make the relationship work, and so they get divorced. Yeah, I, I feel like anybody who I've talked to that has been married longer than like 15 or 20 years has said the same thing. That there's a point where they just did not want to be married to the other person and they would have walked away if they could. And so, right, back to the back to the question. How? But for people who have been divorced, who are divorced in the church, who are thinking about getting divorced, how do Christians, how do we react to that as friends and family members? And, you know, what, what are we supposed to say? To, to somebody who's going to get divorced and how do we treat them then after they do get a divorce if they choose to because i mean some people might argue that like if you get a divorce and, and it's not really for a good reason you're living in unrepentant sin and then and then what and then are we just supposed to never talk to these people again because <laughs> you're not going to go back and get remarried i don't know Maggie has some great ta- content and stories on this, yeah. so I'm great. Oh, yeah. I wait with bated breath. I mean, I can I can certainly tell a little bit about um, the reason why I study divorce and remarriage uh, is the fact that my my parents, uh, those who I grew up, my my mom, uh, biological mom, and my stepdad, long story short, were married right out of high school, got divorced. Um, my mother went and and had uh, both me and my older sister with uh, someone she never married, and my stepdad 
uh, became a Christian and decided that the biblical command was that that was not a legitimate divorce and that this woman was still in God's eyes, his wife. And so he continued to pursue her. Um, and for years, uh, he was in the hospital when my older sister was born. He was there when I was born three years later. Um, so the fact that he was around while she was having children with someone else, but that commitment from, I mean, it was the Holy Spirit telling him, no, like this is, this is your wife. Uh, they got remarried when I was six months old and I was raised in a very strong Christian household as a like witness to his faithfulness to God's command. And it's not an easy marriage. I mean, in the sense that like, I can remember my mom, like yelling at my dad, I'm going to divorce you again and packing us up in the car. And, but my younger siblings do not remember that because they worked at it and their marriage got stronger and stronger. And mm -hmm. I, that level of commitment is what God asks of us. It's what he requires of us in marriage. Um, and so absolutely. Like, I think that we just, we have a very weak backbone because we've been very spoiled. I mean, honestly, we just are very like comfortable um, I think that part of why everyone is very upset and on edge right now is that Christians are maybe for the first time in their life uncomfortable and, and being faced by a culture that doesn't just say you're great, right? Um, and so we, we don't have those muscles. Um, we don't face that struggle very well. I think in particular, your comment about ostracizing divorcees is particularly relevant in that the church... I, I often will criticize the church because I think that there are some historical trends we can point to that are just so problematic and you see them repeat in different forms. Um, so in the 1920s, uh, they would just ostracize divorced women because they saw them as threats to Christian marriage. So if you were a divorced woman in the church, you were seen as a threat to every marriage that still existed. And so it's like, just don't, don't do anything with them. Like they'll be fine. God, like they, their relationship with God is the most important, but they don't belong here with our families because they'll infect us. Um, Which Nick, I mean, Nick's statistic on like three times the amount of, like if somebody in your community is mm -hmm. divorced and so like there's, that's kind of true, but it's also messed up. But, but that, but once that person gets divorced, their presence or lack of presence in the community doesn't matter. It's the fact that they get divorced. So the, oh, those two gotcha. could be held apart, but also there's the issue of like, they didn't do that with the man. Mm -hmm. Right. Sure. Right. Like the, the woman yeah. is seen oh, as yeah. a continuing temptress, but right. the man right. is not seen mm -hmm. in that yeah. way. And so in that sense, it, it tends to have that, Just, it can have that flavor of sexism built into right. it. Right. Yes. Absolutely. And you also have, I mean, here's, here's the thing. Let's say that I, we want to follow God's commands. Um, let's say that, and this is a true story of um, a, a woman in the 1980s. She was divorced as a teenager before she was a Christian. She was married for like two weeks to this guy. Um, she becomes a Christian, feels this conviction that she's still married to this guy. He doesn't want to marry her. He has not like nothing to do with her new faith or anything like that. He's going to marry someone else. So she's like, okay, then I'm just going to remain unmarried the rest of my life. That wasn't the struggle for her. She was like, I have no problem with that. So she reads the Bible and she's like, look, I'm a single woman. I'm supposed to give my life to the church. That's pretty clear in Paul's teaching, right? Single woman can, um, you know, doesn't have to please her husband. She can uh, be concerned about the church. She's like, I'm going to become a missionary. I have that passion. Mission organizations would not accept her because she was divorced. Mm -hmm. Think about that. Like as a single person that those conservative viewpoints want her to stay single. They don't believe that she should get remarried. Many of them did not believe that she should get remarried, but yet they also would not allow her to serve the church. That's ridiculous. And those kinds of things we need to like face as a Christian culture. Like if we're going to ask people 
to live a harder life, we can't make it more difficult. And I think that our kind of attitude towards divorce and the sort of like, I'm uncomfortable about this, so I'm just going to push it aside because I don't know how to handle it. Like that's hurting those people in a way that is absolutely not biblically justifiable at all. Yeah. And I think, I think one of the things, Maggie, tell me if you would agree with this. I'm interested to know if you agree that kind of like some of our African-American friends say, you know, there was like literally legal racism. And now we feel like it's like, it's like socially structured rather than like legally structured. It's still there, but the policies aren't necessarily there. I think similarly, like those policies from that, like from that era of Christian understanding about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, those are mostly gone as like policies, but they can still linger in terms of people's sentiments and like how they naturally and socially respond to people. Mm-hmm. Do you think that still like lingers today? I don't, I, I mean, from my perception of the church, I'm only in Madison and I haven't seen a ton of stuff in my life, but I don't know. I don't really see people like even the really right wing, you know, crazies and, and like conservative churches. And maybe I haven't been to enough, but like, there's no, I don't ever see that really. Like like the situation that you just explained, Maggie. I was going to ask how often did that happen, or like does that happen? I mean, that was the, like, that was the 1980s. Um, there definitely yeah. still are some restrictions um, on those who are divorced, and that also comes from biblical teaching about an elder. Like an elder should be a husband of one wife. Like there's a lot of Christian organizations that take that as like their justification for leadership, and so. That means like someone who's been married multiple times is perhaps less qualified as a spiritual leader. And so that's mm-hmm. where that kind of justification comes from. Um, there's There's been some, I mean, I, I think pretty dramatic shifts since the 90s in that in a lot of spaces. But I think that that social ostracization um, really comes from, again, this this sort of immature, we don't like this, this person is struggling. Here's, I think if I saw that happening, I think I would have to examine the church and see, are they treating the person who's divorced the same way they're treating the couple that's cohabitating? Because my guess is no, because it's easier to accept the couple that's cohabitating because you know how to interact with them. They're in love. It's great. We'll just ignore this. Whereas the divorcee is probably struggling or the person considering Mm -hmm. divorce is struggling. They're in a bad place. They need you to be involved is going to take a profound amount of effort. And so I think that the church itself needs to support, I I think, support reconciliation much more than it does. Um, And I think that that often means weighing into difficult situations that will make you uncomfortable. It doesn't mean like you have to like sit there and berate the person for their reasoning behind their divorce or anything like that. But Mm -hmm. I, I think you do have to sit in discomfort more than most people are willing to do. Yeah, and I think it's really important if you want to be a biblical church because you are going to hurt divorced people's feelings. Mm-hmm. Because you're going to have to talk about divorce and you're going to have to talk about it being wrong. And you're going to have, I mean, you're going to have to say all that stuff. And that's even if they got divorced for like a good reason, it's still going to hurt their feelings because they're going to be sitting in that room and they're going to hear you say it. And I'm thinking of one woman in particular that like got a divorce. She walked through it with me. The elders did not engage in any church discipline because we believed that it was it was legitimate. It, it was like it was like not cleanly legitimate, but we believed that it was legitimate. But like a few times, she's just been like, "I can't go to this church anymore" because like I've said something about marriage and it, how it functions and divorce and how it should not be done. And you know, p- these folks just cannot hear me not attacking them, right? And so you've so like when you deal with them personally, or when you deal with their kids, or your their families, or whatever, you've got to kind of go the extra mile 
to be welcoming and loving and caring and including because if you're going to get up there and preach about the real Christian sexual ethic, you're going to say stuff that's going to hurt them, even though you're not, you don't mean to, but you're going to talk about something that they did and you're going to say it's bad and everybody's going to hear it Mm -hmm. and they're going to be sitting right there. And so I think the only thing you can do is one, be an equal opportunity offender. You have to then say cohabiting is wrong and premarital sex is wrong. Like all the things that Jesus says are wrong, wrong. But then you also have to like go the extra mile to reach out to people that, Mm-hmm. that are going to feel like you're taking a shot at them when you're, you're really just trying to tell the truth and help other people not experience that heartache or disobey the Lord that way. Well, we, we were just talking about like people being ostracized from the, from the church and there seems like there's a couple sins and one of them is like the sin of divorce that that happens with all the time where, where people are ostracized. And so how can, like, I guess, I guess, what's the best way as Christians to show, to show grace? Like, I know we just kind of talked about that, but like, how do we show grace? Because this is either the reason why people are being ostracized is either because they don't understand their own sin and they don't hold that high high enough, or they don't understand God's grace or, or something along those two lines, or they're just lazy. They don't understand discipleship. There's a couple different things, but how can we, how can we as Christians best show grace like I, you just kind of talked about it, Nick, but I, I want to like try, like try to make this even more tangible for people listening, because I think that this is very important. I, like it, it is suck for my family. And it, like when people just, we didn't have a church for a long time because nobody would talk to us. And it yeah. was like, we're on our own. My dad's sleeping uh, at his friend's house. And is like, who's, who's there? No, not the church. And that's not good. But again, they, the maybe the two people that were there for my parents did push them to say, like, "You guys need to like reconcile this marriage," and and they did. And so, how do we do this? Well, I, I think what you're saying is really critical. I think one, elders have to be careful about how they do church discipline and not do it wrong. So, for example, when your fam, when your parents separated, they hadn't sinned yet. Right? Scripture says that a woman should not separate for her, from her husband, but if she does. She must be reconciled to her husband or marry nobody, right? And so, like, there is biblical provision under relatively extreme circumstances for temporary separation. And so, if somebody does it, that's not grounds for church discipline. That's grounds for getting involved. That's grounds for being like, whoa, I, maybe we should have been here to help you earlier. What can we What can we do now? And so, like, I had a church discipline, a preliminary church discipline appointment with a man and a woman who had separated separately. I met with them separately. And... But I, but I told the woman, she, I mean, she, she told me all about like why she did this and why all this happening and whatever. And she's like, are you going to kick me out of the church? I was like, you haven't done anything wrong yet. I mean, like, and so I, and I read the passage where I said, you should study first Corinthians seven, really try to understand what's being said there. But like, yeah, God's will is for you to work out whatever you're, whatever you're dealing with and ultimately to be reunited to your husband. But the fact that you've chosen to separate for a purpose for a period of time in order to recover or to grow stronger or do something isn't biblically wrong yet. So part of it is like, you just have to know what the Bible actually teaches and what it says. And like, I'm all for upholding God's truths in such a way that feels quote conservative, but like, I don't want to be more conservative than God. And like, there's a lot of churches that like, they do that because they're trying, they're trying, they feel like they're trying to be faithful, but they end up being more restrictive than God. And I think that there's a reason why God sets the parameters where he does, mm-hmm. you know, so where you see like legalism mm-hmm. in those circumstances. Maggie, oh, I was going to say, do you you have anything to say to that? Yeah, I mean, I I think that's exactly right. Like this idea, for me, 
there was something about old school divorce laws that I really liked, which was that there was there was a very often a rule for how long you had to wait before you could get remarried. We've totally okay. lost that concept, but it's because like tensions are high. Marriage is hard. If you have given up, truly given up on your marriage at your divorce, like you have completely shut the door to reconciliation, like that's not the biblical message either. And so I think that if we as the church are treating people as pariahs, we're also not opening up that potential for reconciliation, right? And sometimes it's just time. You need time, you need growth, you need development. Um, and and that exactly, right? Like that's that's the biblical standard for separation. Um, and yet we we just go down this whole like just get divorced, get get it over with kind of attitude. And that's so incorrect. Yeah. So, and then if you don't have if people don't wait, then they get into somebody else's bed so fast that they there's there isn't this like separation, that distance and that loneliness mm-hmm. in which you like have to really reckon with yourself. And that's really common now is that people will get out of marriages and they'll get together with somebody really fast. And there, what's driving that is the same dysfunction that made their last marriage bad. And they don't accept that. They don't want to face it. They want to deal with it. And you just get so. So here, here's what I would add to that then is. I believe churches need to recognize that uh, marriage is just categorically harder right now for people as human beings. Now, in some ways, that's not true. In some ways, it ought to be the easiest thing it's ever been because we're wealthier. We have fewer problems. Like for all kinds of reasons, marriage should be the easiest it's ever been right now. There's less in sickness and in health because we're healthier. That like there's less poorer, there's more richer. You know, there's like there's all these things that ought to tell us it's better. But in fact, people are finding it harder because of all these other dynamics that we've been talking about. And so I think what the church has to do is it has to try to foster marriage like like before people even start dating. We have to talk about like what a man and a woman is, how they come to be committed to each other, the fundamental goodness of children. What, what marriage even is, how it functions, what the dynamics that tend to tear us apart, substantive pre-marriage counseling. Like we have a course at High Point for people in the first three years of their marriage. Um, Mike does a course for people who are like about to be engaged, engaged, married, or been married in their first year where he talks about all these dynamics and like how to enrich your marriage. We have marriage enrichment. We have marriage salvage ministries. We have mentoring for men and women. We have marriage mentoring for people who are married. Like we want to recognize that like because of the environment we live in the particular kind of worldliness that we have to resist that that worldliness takes a special kind of shot at marriage because marriage in some ways is about sacrifice and betting on god's way and laying down your life so as to be enriched by the inherent and wholesome goodness of that which grows in god's creation by his means and if any part of your theology or your understanding of the world gets sideways on that marriage starts to make less and less sense in your heart. And so like in some ways we had, we had this like multi-leveled approach to try to support marriage from before people even start dating all the way through um, into the later years of their life. So, and there's what's, I think there was this, I, I think it's kind of a poor analogy in some ways, but it does remind me of something, which is the, the use of like divorce as a disease was really popular, like through the thirties, through the fifties, everyone was like, divorce is a disease. How do we cure it? And this one scholar was like, look, let's look at it this way. Like if divorce is really a disease, where do we build the hospital? Like, and building the hospital, like in the morgue, isn't going to help. 
Like if you really are kind of only, and this is to re- in regards to legislation, right? If you're only going to try and fight this as like preventing the final divorce, you're doing the wrong right. thing. And I think it's the right. same thing for us. Like, where do we build the hospital? It's it's much sooner in the marriage than when right. people are actually on the rocks, right? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I had a really good friend of mine. His name's Harold Rayford. He's an African-American pastor. And he was just sick with the incarceration rates of young black men and stuff like that. And so he started an organization called 1800 Days, which was about the first five years of a black kid's life. And he's like that. He Because like, he was thinking that same way. Where do you like if I don't want a 22 year old black young man to go to jail, where do I start? Mm-hmm. And he decided it was the first 1800 days of a young man's life. And I thought that was great. Um, and so similar, I think marriage is like any of these problems we want to solve the solving point is significantly upstream, you know? And I say in church all the time, I was like, listen, deal with your problem right now because dealing with it later when you're more entrenched psychologically and you have multiple years of resentment built up is not going to be easier, you know? Yeah. But sadly, I mean, most human beings will not change until they have no other choice. And in marriage, the problem with that is, is that when you get to the point where you have no other choice, that is actually usually the moment where the other person has given up and they're walking away. And so now you're like, oh, I guess I have no other choice. I need to change. But the other person is done. And persuading that pe- that person to not be done now is incredibly difficult. It's one of the most difficult mental transitions any person makes is I waited, I waited, I waited, I waited. I'm finally going to leave this marriage. I already feel free. I'm so resentful that you've waited this long. And now injury to insult after all the hints, all the pleadings, all the things I've asked for a change. Now that I'm finally going to leave you, now you say you want to change and I don't believe you really will. Hmm. With all those things coming together to persuade that woman or that man to like hang in there is like, mm-hmm. as a pastor, it's, I mean, it's maybe the hardest, that's maybe the hardest state of mind to crack of any state of mind that I know of. Harder than like a hearted atheist. I mean, I, I don't know of any state of mind harder to crack than that. That's why I say, don't wait. Hmm. Don't wait. And, yeah. that, and because of the way things are right now in the North, in places like Wisconsin, hmm. I especially implore that to men. Um, in places like where I was in Panama City, where the, the social structure supported men a little bit more, um, I'm, I might be a little bit more focused on women, but, um, but there, there are reasons why. Usually it's the guy who is usually it's the guy that I've got to, you've got to motivate to get working on the marriage. Even if the woman, even if you would argue that the woman is the main problem, it's still usually the guy you've really got to activate for the marriage to get better. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's my experience. Yeah. Um, Meg, do you have any like final thoughts or anything you want to kind of close with? I mean, I think one of the things that I just want to emphasize is that I am a scholar. I don't talk to real people very often. I read stories of things that have happened in the past and I look at the historical record and I look at trends, right? So there's a lot of things that I can say very, like in very absolute terms, because I'm like, look, this is what the historical record shows us, right? Um, And I think that sometimes it's very hard for people who are either feeling a a deep sense of shame or they just, they feel like, oh my goodness, this is how I'm being viewed by the church, et cetera, et cetera, and things like that. And I just, I I think it's so important for people who are struggling in their marriages and I'm not married. So this makes this, you know, even weirder that I'm saying this, but when you're struggling in your marriages to remember, like we're human, God is God. He has his standards, but like he loves you. 
And I just think that that is so important. This isn't his judgment raining upon you. Your tough marriage is not like harder than someone else's because, you know, he has condemned you for some reason. And I just, I think that's so important to not internalize that kind of message. So if you're listening to this and you're that person, right, where you you feel like a failure, like that is just not how the Lord wants you to feel about this, right? Just like, you know, anyone else who's really struggling with something, life is hard and marriage is right there at the very top of really hard things in life. And so just to, I'd say go to scripture, right? Because there's so much good in what Christ says. Um, And like so much of what he was fighting against when he was talking about divorce, we look at being so strict. But if you actually dig into it, he was being so kind to those, especially to the women um, of the church, right? Because Jewish law in particular was not kind to women with divorce law. Um, And there's just so much that we have kind of twisted up into um, divorce and remarriage that I think has has really harmed women. Um, and so just that's my my long rant about that, but just not to get dejected, because I think it is very easy to get dejected when you're going through really tough times in your marriage. Um, and the Lord's using that for good, but he does want there to be good for you. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I want to say this, like, I think... Um, the impossible marriage is not as impossible as people think. Like I, there's lots of men and women who think, you know, our marriage has been bad for five years or 10 years. And like, there's, there's no affection there. And like, there's just no way. And, um, and what, what that really means that we don't want to admit this, but what that really means is the way back is going to be humiliating because I'm going to be putting myself, if I will try to win over my spouse's heart again, truly, and I and I go to her and I, I'm just assuming it's male female in this con, but it could be the other way around too, right? And, and I and I like I pour out my heart to her and I tell her I love her and I act in ways that show that I love her and I try to figure out where I haven't listened to her and I try to access her heart on a deeper level and I listen to her like she's a real person and I'm actually fascinated by what she's saying and like I start to treat her like she actually has always wanted to be treated like she hates me too much or she's just going to reject me she's probably going to reject you like the first fifty times because she's hurt and she doesn't trust you and she's angry or vice versa if the genders are switched, right? But like people, even people who have, are have, are cold and angry and upset and closed off, if you choose to love them, don't listen to what they say. They say they hate you. Don't internalize that. You need to hear it as hurt. You need to keep going. And it's amazing how people can be won over if we don't, if we don't let them push us away and if we decide we're going to win their heart, it's amazing what you can do even in a marriage that you think is just completely lost. Um, and even one that has already been severed. Like if you've divorced and like the other person hasn't remarried, like you'd be surprised what's possible. So anyway, I, I and I don't, and I don't mean for that to be like, and if you can't, then you're even worse or that you have to look, but I'm just saying like, well, I think one of the reasons why Jesus gives us one way in some of the worst dilemmas of life is indecision will destroy you. You ha- like, you have to have only one option or you will, or you won't act. Does that make sense? And like, I remember when, one of the worst moments in my marriage with Alexi, um, I just got to this dilemma of like, okay, well I either leave her or I don't. Well, Jesus is Lord. And I swore before him that I would not f- abandon his daughter. 
So I can't leave her. <laughs> okay, so where does that leave me? I can be perpetually unhappy or I can win her over again so that she loves me and I love her. Well, she's okay. not going to want to love me because I've been a jerk and we don't like each other. Well, I'm either going to try or I'm not going to try. Well, I don't want to just live unhappily and that's what not trying is going to get me. So I guess I've got to try, right? And so I bumbled into trying and it turned out she was much easier to win over than I feared. Because once I actually started trying to actually love her, instead of focus on how she wasn't loving me, man, it was amazing how different she was. So like there's so many lies and misunderstandings kind of like built into like what is and isn't possible in restoring relationships. And because of those lies that we believe, we believe that divorce is the only option or the only route of happiness or even the fastest route of happiness when it's none of those things. And so not allowing those lies to take your mind and turning to Christ for a real renewal of our minds in this area related to our sexuality and our companionship and friendship and the complementarity of the genders and how women are a good gift to men. They're not just some crazy thing God made to make our lives miserable or that men are not the most insensitive, horrible things that God has ever made. Like those kinds of lives, we just have to get past those. And it's a lot. It's a lot like um, evangelism in a way where like, I don't know a lot of people who like the first time they heard the gospel, they were completely converted all in. Like it took me a long time. And I know a lot of people it takes like three, four, five, six tries of hearing the gospel before they decide to follow Christ. And then I think when you're talking talking about like it might take 50 tries until your wife or your husband starts to open up it's the same way with with how we were in response to Jesus and the gospel is that he continues to chip away at our heart and at some point we open the door or he comes in so i i think that yeah i think that's great um we're an hour and 20 minutes in so i think we should wrap this up um thanks for coming on maggie um it was fun to have you and i th- i mean we're probably going to do a part 2 because there's a bunch more questions on that sheet but uh, I, who, I don't know who's all going to be on it. But anyways, thanks for coming on. Um, make sure to share this, like, subscribe, do all that fun stuff. And we'll see you guys in the next one. Goodbye.